I would ask you to turn in your Bibles once again to the sixth chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 6. We're in the part of the Roman letter that very often is used to illustrate um, a distinction that exists in the Greek language that is relevant to Christian understandings, Christian living. And that's a distinction between a um, an indicative and an imperative. Um, some, I think Michael's shaking his head, He's, he knows this distinction, he's heard it before, that uh, in the Greek language, as in many languages, you have, well, every language puts it differently, but it's, it's, it's structured right within the, the word itself, something that is a, uh, a word that speaks of a fact, it's, and that's what's called an indicative. It's an effect, something that is done, something God does or something we do that's put in the, in, in the mode of the indicative uh, part, the indicative mode of the verb. And then, um, I'm sorry, not mode, mood, mood of the verb. And then an imperative is a word of commandment. And um, so the idea is that we have here an example of Paul using primarily indicative uh, verbs that are telling us what God has done, telling us who and what we are in Christ, speaking of accomplished realities that are true of us, that we have died to sin, and that we have died together with Christ, we've been raised with him in newness of life. Uh, This is something that doesn't require us to do anything, because this is expressing what has been done for us that God has done this for us, done this to us. This is an accomplished reality that uh, speaks of our identity, speaks of who and what we are in Christ. We are those who are united to Christ. We are joined to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And then from that um, indicative mood of the verb, we have a series of imperatives, or sometimes it's subjunctives. Let me tell you the difference between those two things. An imperative is a word of commandment. It simply is issuing forth a command. This is what you are to do. Um, A subjunctive is something similar to a command, but it's in the form usually of an exhortation. It's exhorting you to a a way of conduct. Let us do this. You should do this. I encourage you to do this. All those words of encouragement come usually in the Greek language in a subjunctive mood. Um, So you have subjunctives. Let Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. There's an exhortation. It's based upon the fact that we have died to sin. Let not therefore sin reign. Wait a minute. Um, Hasn't God already made it so that sin would not reign? Well, well, yeah, but you must also um, let let it not occur. You you can't go go back to sin. You can't go back to doing the things you you formerly did in an unconverted state, but rather, uh, and you're not to present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. And we can't just reason, well, because God has done this for us, this is a subtle reality, this is who and what we are in Christ, that we don't need exhortations, that we don't need encouragements not to do this and to do, th- and to do that. And then that we don't need commandments. And the uh, latter part of the chapter is filled with words that speak to the issue of, uh, of, 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 of commandments. God's telling us what to do, what not to do. Uh, let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. Um, um, let me give some more examples of this. He says, um, 
uh, present your bodies as uh, instruments of righteousness. That's, that's an imperative. It's, it's a command. This is what we are to do. We're to present our, the members of our body as instruments of, um, of righteousness unto God. Um, we're not to be servants of sin. And that's a command. And you see, the commandments are based upon the indicatives of what God has achieved for us in Christ, what God has made us in Christ, what he's constituted us as new creatures in Christ, and therefore we can do these things, we can be encouraged to do these things, and we can be commanded to do, the, to, to do these things. You know, you, you can command the dead all day long, but the dead won't do anything. You can, command, you can encourage the dead. And the dead won't do anything. It's only living saints that can do the things that the Word of God commands. And we can do these things because of who and what we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, what has been accomplished for us. And um, so we're going to see that as we move along, that these now begin to move from the indicatives of of, of what God has done, of what is true of us, of what we are in Christ, to the encouragements to be what we are, what we have been made to, to be made, to be what we have been made to be. Um, again, it's not a question that God uh, doesn't achieve for us what these things call us to, uh, but that we are those who are called into union with Christ to perform God's work as redeemed people as slaves that have been made free and given capacities and abilities to render obedience uh, to the God of our salvation. And so, though God has done these things and it's his work, yet the Bible's account of the works of God does not rule out our works. We're to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, even as he works in us to will and to work for his own good pleasure. Those things are concurrent realities. They're not... um, uh, they're not inconsistent. They, they cohere. They, they're together in the life of the believer. Um, I ran across something this past week that I, I felt I needed to say something to you about because it's, it's, it's getting more and more co- common in the way in which um, things are taught today in the churches, particularly like I think of some teachers who seem to emphasize what they like to call what our position is in Jesus. And um, what they basically try to do is, I think, turn everything that the Bible says about the benefits of salvation and turn it into potentiality or turn it into legality. This is our new standing. This is our new position. Um, And it hasn't necessarily done anything to us. Uh, There's no necessary change, in other words, that the initial work of grace does. And my understanding is that the initial work of grace does much. It's not just a question that we've been transferred from death unto life in terms of um, a position, but there's been an actual infusion of newness of life in us as the people of God. That when we come to faith in Christ, new capacities are granted. New abilities are granted. Um, The Spirit of God is given to us who believe in, in Christ. We are made new creatures in Christ. It's not just positions. It's not just, well, we, God's placed us into this legality. He's placed us into this um, um, place that this is our new, you know, you get a placement in a, in a batting order in a, in, a, in a baseball team. You're a member of the team, and so you get up and hit. Maybe you don't know a thing about hitting at all, and you've never done it before. But you see, you don't get placements in things unless you're capable of performing. You don't get placements in a business if you're not capable of performing. And God doesn't place us into his kingdom, give us a bunch of exhortations and commandments, and says, go ahead and do it, if he hasn't given us an ability to do it. 
And what the grace of God does is it provides ability as well as these legal matters of transfer, of being transferred from exposure to wrath into grace. The grace of God comes teaching us. The grace of God comes working in us. And there is that um, reality that it's not just place and position and potentiality, it's reality. And so it's based upon reality. And I think something of the, of the thought, I know, I know, I hear, I hear it now, it's good natured at this point, hold on to anything else but good natured, that there's some kidding going on in the church about the fact whenever Pastor Gordon speaks, he's going to say, now turn to the Garden of Eden. <laughs> or or turn, to, turn, turn to Mount Sinai. Turn to some Old Testament reality. I don't mind if it's good natured kidding. But you know, that's where you go. That's where you go because the Bible brings us back to the Old Testament that's foundational to the things we find in the New Testament. Remember, in the early church, there was no New Testament until it got written. <laughs> Everything Jesus taught them from the, from the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms concerning himself. But anyway, to go back to the Old Testament and to see Paul's language as indicating matters like a new exodus, that the slaves are made free. We who are slaves to sin are made free to serve. That's what God did to Israel. He brought them out of captivity. He brought them out of bondage. He brought them out of a place where they couldn't serve him and obey him. And only when he liberates other than able to serve. But he does liberate. He does liberate. And he brings them to Mount Sinai and he says, I've taken you on eagle's wings. I brought you to myself. Now therefore do this. Now they couldn't do those things in captivity. But it's not just their place and position has changed, their condition has changed. They're no longer slaves, and they're free. They're able, God's given them ability and capacity to be obedient. Now he knows that probably they won't, Joshua has to tell them, you can't obey the Lord, he's just so hard-hearted and stiff-necked that this is, you're not going to do this. But in terms of the spiritual grace that the gospel brings, we are given enablement to do the will of God. And so we see what we are in Jesus, who, what are we? We're united to Christ in his death, in his burial. And in his resurrection, we've been raised from the dead that we might walk in newness of life. And then Paul says, now that reality, consider it. Think upon it. Don't forget it. Don't live as if it weren't so. Again, you think of the Israelites who were brought out of Egyptian bondage and some of them still had the slave mentality. They still had the thought it was a great thing to be in Egypt. We had all the benefits of all the... Oh, come on. That was just so absurd. They were under this harsh and cruel uh, bondage, and, and, and yet uh, they were so wicked in their perspective and uh, that they, they, they couldn't appreciate liberty. They couldn't appreciate freedom. And that often happens with people who are... Who, you know, there are people that have lived in poverty, and they've died in poverty, even though there were millions of dollars in the bank. You know, they, they, you've heard stories about that, right? The old bag ladies, they died and they found out that person had hundreds of thousands of dollars sitting in the bank. Yet their, their mental perspective was just to live out of the bag, to live, out of, live on the streets. Well, there are people who spiritually do that very thing. Just a failure to recognize the wealth and the blessings that we have in, in Christ. And so Paul says, it's not just enough to know what, who and what you are, and what God has done, 
But you need to know that what God has done has made all the difference in terms of how you view yourself, how you, how you see your life, how you live your life, and there's ability to do the will of God. You don't have to be a slave. You don't have to continue with the mental perspective of a slave. You can live as God's free and liberated people. So let not therefore sin reign in your mortal bodies. Verse 12, don't obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And you realize that when he's talking about members, he's talking about the members of the body. He's talking about what we do in the life of the body. What we do with our hands and our feet and our eyes and our ears and our tongues. Again, the body is the instrument through which we live out our lives. And it's in the body that we serve God. The Bible makes much emphasis upon the, the, the body as the redeemed possession of the Lord. So much a, a, a matter of, of importance that the body will be raised from the dead. That the body will experience a transformation uh, that is capable of, of, of living eternally with God in a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. God's going to do that. Because the body's important. Our, our life is not just the life of the soul or the spirit or the inner man or the mind. It's the life of the, of the body's soul entity that we're made in, in, in God's image with respect to. And so, and so live, live, live like that. Live like you are the new creation of God. Uh, verse 15, he raises a, a similar question to what was raised in verse 1. In verse 1 he said, What shall we say then? But we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer is, by no means. And a similar question, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? You hear the point that comes in is the law. The believer's relationship to the law. And that's something that he will take up in this next section. And it goes into chapter 7. And we need to recognize that, that Paul is now bringing in the whole question of the place of the law in the lives of the people of God. And we might ask the question, why does he do that? Why does he do that? I mean, he talked about the law earlier on, that the law, through the law comes the knowledge of sin, that by the law no one is justified in the sight of God. Um, But then he goes on to speak of the blessings we have in the gospel, um, the blessings we have um, through our justification. uh, uh, And he goes on to then to speak about Adam, and he speaks about Jesus as the two representative peoples through whom the whole destiny of the world um, is uh, is to be found. We're either um, in Adam, under death, under sin, and under condemnation, or in Jesus, who has brought in obedience and righteousness and life. And, um, but you know, the, I, I imagine if you were a Jew of the first century, uh, someone who Paul was, might have met in synagogues when he witnessed the gospel, even people who came into the church, who would say, well, well yeah, but you know, there is another place that we can be. There's a kind of a mediating position between Adam and Jesus, because after Adam and before Jesus, what did God do? He gave a law. He gave the law at Sinai. So, so maybe the real remedy for what we are in Adam, the real remedy for, for, for sin and death and condemnation, is maybe we don't need Jesus, at least not that, that, that piercingly needy of Jesus, because we have this law. 
this law that God has given. And this law can come in and maybe help, 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 help us out. And of course, Paul concluded in the fourth, third chapter that it can't with respect to justification. And I think he's bringing it in that it can't help in the Christian life either. If you articulate a Christian life in which we become liberated through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, um, well, maybe then the law will help us now that Jesus has done this for us. Now, now the law becomes the means by which we become um, uh, the obedient people. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, if, if the law doesn't come in, then the law gives place to license. If we don't have the law coming and thundering its precepts at us day and night, if we're not waking every hour thinking, how have I kept the law in all of its myriad commandments and all of its detail? And here, the law would be not just the moral law, it would be also the ceremonies of the of circumcision, the, the dietary restrictions. It would be the whole, um, uh, the whole law that was given through Moses, the law that came through Moses. Now, there are distinctions there with the law that was given through Moses, but Paul's not engaging in distinctions. He's talking about the law as a whole, the law as a body of instruction. Uh, in fact, you know, the word law, uh, many times we think of it in terms of commandments, but actually the word law, Torah, in the Old Testament, there's another word for a commandment in the Old Testament, but it's not law. Uh, I can't think of it offhand. I got one of the Greek words, but the Hebrew word for, for, for law escapes my, my, my recollection at this point. But Torah is, is, is the word that speaks of instruction. You remember in the 19th Psalm, it speaks of the law in terms of precept and testimony. And, and like there's six or seven different words that are given uh, for the law. But, uh, and, and part of it is commandment, and part of it is precept, and part of it is wisdom, and part of it is fear, and part of it is all these things. But the, but the word law itself means instruction. It means teaching. So anything that teaches you anything about God and about uh, yourself and the world and uh, how you live in this world, it's part of the law. It's part of divine instruction. So the totality of the revelation of God is, in fact, law. And you think of the wisdom of the Proverbs, and even there the Father says, Heed the law of your father and the commandment of your mother. The laws and commandments enter in to law. This law is instruction. It's wisdom. And the law teaches us the way of wisdom. It teaches us the way of life um, and how to live life to its full. But the law cannot... Con- cannot atone for sin. I mean, of course, there were laws that were given to prefigure Christ in terms of the the sacrifices, but the instruction itself cannot atone for sin. Something else has to enter in to bring atonement for sin, and something else has to enter in to enable those who hear the words of the instruction to heed the words of the instruction. So the word obedience is a word both in the Hebrew and in the Greek that doesn't just mean... um, to do, it means to hear and do. You have to hear it first before you do. And what you hear in the law, you're called upon to do. But what if you don't do or can't do the things you hear? Um, and in and of itself, the law doesn't give you the power to do it. The law just tells you what to do. The law just says, this is the way you to live and this is what you to do. But it doesn't bring enablement. 
But the thing about the gospel, as we've already said, as we talked about indicatives, when we talk about imperatives, when we talked about subjunctives, is that God has not only done a great thing for us in his grace, but with that grace he gives enablement. So part of grace is enablement. Part of grace is the grace not only to know, but it's the grace to do. It's the power to do. And so, if we don't have this grace and only have law, then, uh, uh, I'm sorry, as someone could say, if, if you're just glorying in this grace, but not the law, which the law teaches, the law directs, the, Lord, the law uh, defines, uh, are we then to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? If we don't have this great teaching vehicle, which, again, I don't think we don't have the teaching vehicle in grace because the grace of God comes to teach. But this, for argument's sake, is if you're ruling out the law as a place of refuge, if you're looking at uh, ruling out the law as a place for safety, some mediating point between Adam and Jesus, the law comes in, and the law is going to do something good for us. And if you just rule that out, then you're just giving way to licentiousness. You're giving way to a life that's undisciplined. You're giving way to a life that just is... Uh, they don't seem to care about moral and ethical distinctions. At least that's what the argument is. Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? And Paul's answer is, by no means. May it never be. It's out of the question that we should ever think that we are to continue in sin because we're people under grace and not under law. Law can do nothing to, help, to, to enable us. Law is not the great enabler. He says, do you not know that if, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. See, there's only two places to be with respect to the whole great questions of life. Uh, again, he's already said it's either Adam or, or Jesus. It's either um, sin, uh, condemnation and death, or obedience, life, and righteousness. Well, well Jesus has brought about obedience. But he's brought about obedience not just for himself, but for those who are in him, that we also might mimic him. And, and this whole question of being under Adam or under grace is also a question of whom you serve. Whom you serve. You see, Adam has cast the human race into sin because we have a sin propensity. We have a sin nature. We have a sin desire. We have a lust, and a, uh, an inward pull that brings us into the direction of sin when we're in Adam. But when we're brought into Christ, again, behold a new creation. And all the propensity is Godward. All the propensity now is we've been liberated and we've been brought into a place where our desire is to please God. Our desire is to please the one who loved us, who gave himself for us. And so when we think about our life and we think about our ways, um, our, where we are in, in Adam or Christ is going to be seen by what, our, what we do, what our, what our body yields to, what we give our members to. Are we serving sin or are we serving grace. Now, what he's not saying is that believers never sin. He's not saying that. But he's saying that what is the dominant feature of the life of God's people? What's the dominant mood, perspective, understanding, aspiration? Where, where are we at in terms of our understanding of our identity? 
If we're the people whom Jesus has lead, led out of, out of bondage, if we're the people of the new exodus, if we're people of a new creation, it's all directed in one way, to be servants of God. And that's a part of the genius of the gospel, is it liberates us from the servitude of sin and makes us to become servants unto God. And Paul says, do you not know that what you do with your body day by day by day by day evidences whose slave you are? Are you God's slave? Are you the slave of Christ? Are you brought into the orbit of the grace of the gospel? Or are you still a slave of sin? If you're a slave of sin, law's not helping you out. Law's not getting you out of that. Law's not a liberator. Law's going to keep you confined. But Christ has come as the great liberator to lead us to God. Thanks be to God, he says, verse 17, that you who once were servants of sin or slaves of sin, you become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And what Paul's doing here is he's he's describing faith. He's describing faith. And he's describing faith not as just a, a nod of the head towards Jesus. Not just a, a decision to, well, I want to be saved, so let me pray a prayer. It, it's the matter of obedience from the heart to a standard of teaching to which you are committed. Faith is commitment. Faith is allegiance. Faith is loyalty. Faith is a determination to leave the old and to pursue the new. Forsaking all, I trust him. That old anacrostic and whatever. Forsaking all, I trust him. F-A-I-T-H. Forsaking all, I trust him. There is that forsaking all aspect of it. It's, again, one of the great pictures of the biblical um, uh, biblical picture of salvation is, is where mar- uh, marriage takes place. He's going to talk about that in chapter 7. And, and you stand at an altar and say, forsaking all others, I take you. The faith is forsaking all others, all other gods, all other competitors. Uh, and it's the commitment to, to the Lord, to the standard of teaching given us in the gospel. So uh, again, it's, it's not that the Bible, it's not that the gospel doesn't have instruction, but that's not all it has. It has instruction tied to a redemption. It has instruction tied to a power that liberates. It has instruction that's tied to a Savior who saves Law didn't have that. But the gospel does. It has instruction that ties us to Jesus and ties us to union with him in his death, burial, and resurrection so that there is enablement to be obedient servants to God. Having been set free, he says in verse 18, Having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. He comments in verse 19, he says, I'm speaking in, in, in human terms because of your natural limitations. Um, again, I'm not exactly sure what he's saying by speaking in human terms, but I think what Paul's doing, he's saying, I'm looking to speak in, in ways you can understand, in ways that are, are clear. And, and maybe natural terms or human terms, um, you know, maybe that it, it, it's not just the fact that God has intervened from heaven in the person of Jesus 
but that there is a redemption that's even an earthly redemption upon the earth that Moses led the people of Israel in that should really show you that this redemption out of bondage is meant to make us worshipers and servants and followers of the living and, and true God. And, and the great error of the Old Testament people of God was that they just regaled themselves in the externals and never sought the internals. They had the circumcision of the flesh, but not the circumcision of the heart. Even in human terms, though, you can see that you liberate somebody from bondage, they should be brought into obligation to their liberator. Right? I mean, that's why the you know, South American countries uh, celebrate the, um, the birthday of uh, Simon Bolivar, the great liberator of people in parts of South America. Um, while we celebrate Washington's birthday, great general that led us against the tyranny, so we thought, so we were taught of, of King George III. So, um, you know, we're all, we, we find ourselves obliged to those who liberate us, just in mere human terms, that there is devotion, commitment, love, appreciation, celebration, commemoration of great liberators. Um, when, and so when God comes in, in liberation, what obligations do we have to him? So Paul concludes, For just as you once, in the same manner as you once, presented your members as slaves to impurity. And when you think about that, that was a very real service that we rendered to sin. It wasn't hypothetical. It wasn't that, well, that's what we should have been. No, that's what we were. That's what we were in a very real, tangible way. You were slaves to impurity. And when sin said it wanted something from you, you gave it. Willingly and obediently. Give me your tongue to speak lies. You gave it. Give me your ears to hear gossip. You gave it. Give me your feet to walk in ways of, of impurity. And, and you did it. You did what sin wanted you to do. It was a very real, practical personal servitude you render to sin. So just as you once, in that real practical, real life way, presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now, in that same way, in that same real world disobedience, now give real world obedience, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. This is probably one of the few times that Paul uses the language of sanctification not to speak of something already done. Usually sanctification is that we are sanctified. We are um, <clears throat> saints. Though that's the word group, that's same, same word group that speaks of sanctification. But now, now Paul speaks of what leads to sanctification. There is this initial sanctification, this cleavage from sin, this leaving of the old and the beginning of a new life and and now as you continue in that new life, there is to be something, I guess we call progressive sanctification, something in the way of continuing on in the way of sanctified living. Writer in Hebrews seems to point in that direction when he says that um, chapter 12, I think it is in verse 14. I might be wrong, but I think that's what it is. He says, um, pursuing holiness, pursuing sanctification in the fear of God. Um, 
So there is this to be this pursuit. Oh, I'm sorry, the pursuit, pursuing. No, no, that's Second Corinthians seven one. I just quoted to you, but uh, uh, the holiness without which no man can see the Lord. There is the pursuit of a holiness without which no man can see the Lord. So there is this pursuit of a practical sanctification, of setting our members apart to God. Chapter twelve and verse one, he says, "By the mercies of God, I beseech you to present your bodies." a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, that sanctification of daily living, that sanctification of giving ourselves over to God in practical service. And then he concludes the chapter by going back to their past, going back to what they were in Adam. And again, I think we have to think of these terms as just the consequence of what it means to be an Adam on the one hand, what it means to be in Christ on the other hand, and being in law is not is, is no mediating ground. There's no middle ground. It's not you say, well, I don't like this radical contrast between Adam and Jesus. Let me find something in the middle. Call, no, that won't work. It doesn't work. Law does not provide a third category. Just as you're either in Adam or you're in Christ, so you're either slaves of sin or slaves to God. One or the other, no middle ground. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. <laughs> you know, righteousness had really nothing to say to you, at least nothing that you heard. You knew maybe you should be that way, but no, you that's for the that's for the holy rollers, that's for the for the church folks, and we're not them. So you were free in regard to all the claims of righteousness. And then he says, What fruit were you getting at that time? from the things of which you are now ashamed. That's really telling. Paul says you look back upon the past and you, you should be able to blush. It's one of the things Jeremiah says that the people of his generation were unable to do. They were unable to blush. There was no sense of shame connected with their sin. And now we have a sense of shame connected with our sins. We look back on the past and there's nothing we pride ourselves in. There's nothing that we say, look what a great sinner I was and what a great savior I have because now I've been brought from great sin to be a great saint and everything is great. Well, well, sometimes then you bask in something of Jesus' reflected glory. It comes to you because of how great you were both in your sin and in your grace. But uh, Paul says when you look back to what you were, you hang your head. You hang your head. Your cheeks redden. And you're filled with, with shame. You're able to blush. He says the end of those things is death. But now, but now, here's the great transition. That you've been set free from sin. And have become slaves to God. And he's back into indicatives. This is what is. This is what is. This is not what you are commanded to be. This is what you are. You've been set from free, set free from sin you become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And, and so, so Paul says there's something that radical that's happened in the past, there's something that continues on into the present, and there's something we anticipate for the future. In the past, you've been set free from sin. In the present, the fruit you get is unto sanctification. In the end, the anticipated future is eternal life. 
Sometimes people have called that salvation past, present, and future. And each are part of the salvation of God. You can't just say, well, I got this past salvation, I got a future hope, but what's happening today really doesn't matter. That doesn't make any, that doesn't enter in. We just were saved and will be saved, but no, you're being saved. You're being saved from sin. Your fruit is being, you have fruit unto sanctification. And it's important to see that, that that's the full picture of the salvation of God. Because we like to take many times passages out of their context, assign meanings to them they were never intended to teach. And I think we find an example of that in Romans 6.23, which becomes part of a lot of people's evangelism in terms of the Romans road. You throw 6.23 in there, you tell people, look, here's what the deal is. The wages of sin is death. So that you can have that, or the free gift of God, which we're offering you today, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, you want the free gift? You, you want the wages of, of sin? Well, uh, no, people don't want the wages of sin, but, 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 you, 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 but you know what they also don't want? They don't want the fruit that leads unto sanctification. <laughs> they don't want that. And, and, and to present them eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, abstracted from what Paul says you get when you're set free from sin, you get the fruit that leads to sanctification and act as if that's not a part of the picture is really not to convey the gospel properly. You know, people need to be shown that the reason that the wages of sin is death is that they're slaves and servants of sin. They're sin's captives. They're under sin's dominion and under sin's power. And they need to come under a greater power. And what the gospel offers is not just um, a freedom from damnation, but a power for salvation. You know, everybody's going to sign on to freedom from damnation, but do they want power for salvation? And power for salvation involves a power that is not just something in the future, but it's something in the present. It's something that is infused into us by the grace of the gospel when we come to faith in Christ. And we're freed from sin. We're made servants to God. And being made slaves to God, we have a power to serve God. We have a propensity to serve God. We have the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. And you can't just rule out that whole dynamic, that whole power of biblical salvation in order to offer people something that the Bible doesn't offer. The Bible doesn't offer uh, what you get sometimes in Monopoly, get out of jail free card. <laughs> so, you know, you got immunity. You got immunity. Everybody wants immunity from prosecution. <laughs> Don't want to be prosecuted. Don't want to go to jail. I want immunity. But as you get old enough to remember Beretta, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. But we've done the crime. And the only way out of the time that is, um, is, is to be in, in Christ. It's to be out of Adam into Christ. And being in Christ is newness of life. To be in Christ is new creation. To be in Christ, there's the spiritual transformation that the gospel offers. I mean, I didn't put that in God's Word. It's, it's there. That's what God's Word tells us. That part of what is involved in eternal life is the fruit that leads to sanctification. 
And in fact, eternal life is eternal life that's not just the life of the age to come. It's the life of the age to come brought into the life of the believer in the present. It's the power of resurrection now out of time because resurrection was thought by the Jews to be a, late, a latter time concept. And Jesus says, no, 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 I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. And that's not just power to raise a dead body, that's power to give newness of life. That Jesus raises the dead by the power of the gospel, the spiritually dead, unto spiritual life in him. Well, that leads us to the end of chapter 6. Any questions about what we've looked at either last week or this week in the 6th chapter? I want to give you something of an introduction to chapter 7. We're not going to get into the details today, but I can give you something by way of an, of an introduction. Uh, if you were to just think, just don't look, don't look at your Bibles, every head up, every eye closed. No, I'm sorry. I don't mean that. Every head up. If you were just to think of Romans chapter 7, what's the big thing that comes to your mind? It just, just in general. Anything? Do I see a hand? No hand raised. Paul is uh, saying the things I don't want to do, I do. And okay. This great tension of yeah. doing the things you don't want to do and doing, uh, don't doing the things you, you want to do. And the great question that oftentimes is raised and is argued about is, when did Paul say that? Or how was he anticipating those words to be understood? Was, was it to be understood as what was true of him in unbelief or in belief? Is it true? Is it something that's true of unbelievers or believers? And, and that's really where Romans 7 gets argued out. Is that you know, there are people that say, well, this great uh, tension that Paul is experiencing was something that led him to faith. And a certain evidence in the passage that would lead you to think that that's true. Paul said he would not have known sin if the law had not said, God, thou shalt not covet. But, you know, he was alive once apart from the law, and then the law came, said, thou shalt not covet, sin revived, and I died. Uh, so like all of his hopes were smashed, he says, when he came to understand that he was a coveter. And so that's all true of him, it would appear, in the whole matter of pre-faith, before coming to faith when he was a self-righteous, self-centered, self-glorying Pharisee, uh, glorying in the law. And the law came and slew him. And, um, but then there's also stuff in the passage that would indicate that this is someone who's a believer. It's someone who delights in the law of the Lord after the inward man. Who can do that? Unbelievers don't delight in the law of the Lord after the inward man, but this man delights in the law of the Lord after the inward man. So anyway, there is this argument that goes on between, I guess, Reformed folks on the one hand taking a view that would say that Paul's speaking about Christian experience. He's speaking about the Christian life. He's speaking about the tension that sin in, in our life that we struggle with every day of our lives until we get to glory. On the other hand, people like uh, the Wesleyans, uh, followers of John Wesley, who teach a form of Christian perfection. This is, oh, no, 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 that, that can't really describe the Christian life at all. Because the Christian life, that doesn't sound very victorious, and the Christian life is a victorious life, so that can't describe the Christian. It must speak of Paul pre-faith. And uh, so they argue, argue about what, who is the Romans man, the unbeliever or the believer. 
And I guess I would just say to you, don't think in those terms. That that's not the, the terms with which you should be approaching Romans 7 to try to determine was Paul speaking about himself before or after he came to faith. Um, it's the question that Paul is addressing that has to do with the law. It has to do with Paul's relationship to the law. Not so much at what point was he converted. I mean, we might have a sense that you know that certain things were certainly true of Paul and unbelief and certain things are true of Paul and faith, but that's not really where Paul's going. That's not really what Paul is endeavoring to argue. Again, we'll go back to chapter 6 in verse 15. The issue was being under law or under grace. Actually, back to verse 14. Sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. The people of God are not under law. They're under grace. And then the great question is, but where is the law then? Where does the law come in? Does the law have absolutely nothing to say to the people of God? And in chapter 7, Paul is concerned to place before the reader what the law does. What our relationship to law is. How the law can function and doesn't function in the life of the believer and how it might function in the the life of the believer. But everything is really rotating around the theme of the relationship we sustain to the law. And let me just give you some of the highlights of chapter 7 and and then ask you to read through it in the coming week and we'll come back next week and we'll discuss it further. Um, Paul begins uh, in verse 1 of chapter 7, I'm speaking to those who know the law. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. And then about the way in which the married person is bound, at least from the law of, um, of marriage by death. But the whole question there, again, is under law or not? Free from the law or bound to the law? And then verse uh, 4, likewise, my brother, you have died to the law uh, through the body of Christ, so that you might be raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Again, that's language that comes in from chapter 6 again, fruit unto sanctification. So all this is based upon chapter 6. That's why it's so silly to see Romans as a letter that's cordoned off into chapters, and this is the theme he deals with here, and this is the theme he deals with here, and this is the theme he deals with here. It's the very language, it just is interwoven into the different sections. and It's it's an argument that is one thing based upon another thing, and there's unity in, in Paul's teaching. Um, he says in verse 6, we're released from the law, having died to that in which we were held captive. And then verse 7, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? Is that the conclusion? Is the law something sinful? He says, by no means. For I had not known the law. If I had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And so he gives, gives instruction with respect to that, how law operated in his life, showing him the reality of his sin. Um, verse, he concludes verse 12, so the law is holy. The law is not an enemy. I mean, if our, we want our fruit under sanctification and the law is holy, maybe there's something about the law and sanctification that have a, a, a relationship. Right? Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that? If our fruit is to be under sanctification and the law is sanctification, shouldn't you then say the law has something to say to me who would be sanctified in Christ? Well, it does. It does. The commandment is holy. It's righteous and good. Well, for servants of God and servants obedient uh, to righteousness, and the law is righteous, uh, is the law an enemy? 
If, if we're saved to, to pursue the good and the law is good, is the law an enemy? You see the point? No, it's not. No, it's not what the Jews thought it was, some safe retreat away from Adam and not yet coming to Christ, some kind of middle ground, but it is not nothing. It's not nothing. It has its place and its position within the lives of the people of God. Now again, with the law properly understood, again, law is a big subject that covers so much in the Old Testament, but there's aspects of the law that carry on today for the people of God, because the law is the, the, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, it's righteous, and it's good. He said then, did that which is good, which is the law, in this section of verse 13, then bring death to me? By no means. He's not blaming the law for his problem. The law is not the culprit. It's not an enemy, and it's not the culprit. I mean, it's not a savior. <laughs> can't help us. But it really didn't hurt us because it's not the law that hurt us. The law is holy, good, and righteous. It's sin producing death in me through what is good, through the law. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So it's not the law that's the, the, the culprit, it's, it's, it's sin. Um, he does kind of throw us a little bit of a curve about a law that he says that is in me. There's an internal law that is um, this matter of conflict where this enters in. But, but, but we'll get to that. But the whole purpose of the section is to define law's place in the life of the believer. And so I'll just give you a little hint of that reality by these verses we looked at this morning and we'll be able to discuss it more fully when we gather, God willing, uh, next week. Although, you know what? This is the first week of the month and I didn't do an open forum. Completely skipped my mind, folks. But that's okay. We'll continue on to Romans. If you have an open forum question, let me know about it and we'll schedule a week to do it. But right now, we'll just, for the month of May, we'll just press on in the book of, um, the book of Romans. Nobody stopped me and said, Pastor, it's the first Sunday of May. Of May. We should be doing an open forum. If you had done that, I would have stopped, but uh, I hope this has been good. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the richness of the instruction of your word. We're thankful for the completeness of the salvation that is in Jesus. The salvation that, 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 that not only has brought us uh, benefits that we could look at, we can say has met us in the past and will meet us in the future, but benefits that meet us right today in the life that we live before you, that we are your people, freed from slave servitude to sin and freed to be slaves of righteousness. We desire to be righteous and to love you and to serve you and to honor you and to please you. We pray that grace would be given to us even in this day that we spend together in worship and in a fellowship, that, Lord, you would benefit us immensely. You'd encourage our hearts and the knowledge of you and in the fear of you and in the love of you, as we'd ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.